Welcome. I don't know. Um, I don't know which one of those brothers that you resonate with walking in here um, this morning. I know for myself, I've been more like the younger brother at certain times in my life, more like the older brother at certain times in my life. Isn't that crazy how in this series, maybe you've noticed how these parables, these stories that Jesus told, even though they're over 2,000 years old, we are able to find ourselves within this story. I think that's so cool. Um, Our family loves getting to come to Vegas. I'm always so grateful to have the opportunity to teach at The Crossing. Uh, The Crossing is like extended family for us. It's extended family for our church in Ventura, uh, Mission Church. Plus, you know, every now and then you got to get out of the 75 degrees, you know, you got to come here. Um, uh, What I do really love about this city is The diversity. I love watching people and so many different people in the city from so many different um, walks of life. Last night, my husband and I took our three daughters um, downtown to the Strip to see a show. And so as we're leaving the show, we're coming out of the parking garage and a man walks right in front of our car. We have to stop for him. He's walking right in front of um, the car wearing nothing. Like literally, except for a strategically placed cloth. And my husband said to the girls, like, wow, he needs to put on a shirt. And my eight-year-old said, and some pants. <laughs> you know, We were like, welcome to Vegas. Uh, the people watching is amazing because there's just so many people from so many different places, and I love that. Uh, we like to put people into categories, don't we? We kind of go, oh, yeah, there's two groups of people. There's the uh, do-gooders, and there's the do-batters, and there's the haves, and there's the have-nots, or um, there's Republicans and Democrats. You know, there's Justin Timberlake fans. And then those other people, I don't know who they are, but I'm sure they're out there um, somewhere. So I thought what we'd do this morning to get started is like just a little bit of mass confession, because let's see what kind of people we have in the room. If you would consider yourself um, a spender, like that's what money's for. You spend it. You're a spender. Yeah. Spenders. Yes. What about savers? Uh, Savers. Yeah. Isn't it fun how usually we end up like in relationship with each other or something like that? Okay. What about um, introverts? If you're introverted... That's me, yes. Uh, Any extroverts in the room? Yes. We know, you're going to woo, you're going to be loud, we know, all that stuff. Yes. Um, What about safe side people? You like to play it safe. Let's keep it cautious. Let's wear the helmet. Let's do the thing, yes. What about wild side people? Yes, you're living on the wild side. Um, How many rule keepers do we have in the room? Like, this is a rule. Yes, we're playing a board game. We've got Monopoly out, you know, and in Section 5, Article A, it says we don't put money on free park. We're not doing that. Um, And then others of you are rules are suggestions people. Rules or suggestions. Yes, I'm married to one of those people. Um, and it's like, you know, 11 over. I mean, that's not really breaking the law. That No one's going to pull you over for 11 over because rules are suggestions. Well, this story that we find ourselves in today has it all. Okay, it's got this younger brother. He's wild side. He's, he's no rules. He's spontaneous. And this older brother's like, hey, play it safe. You know, we got to keep the rules. He's really frustrated with the younger brother. And then there's the father that loves them both which is incredibly important because that's what we believe here in this place at the crossing. Maybe this is your first time walking into the crossing. What we believe is this message of hope that Jesus shares through this story that it's for everybody. It doesn't matter what color your skin is, what ethnicity you are, where you've come from, what language you speak, what political party you support what your personality type is, what kind of house you live in or car you drive, it doesn't matter what you look like 
what you're good at, where you work. This hope is for everyone. That's why it's important to remember who it was that Jesus was speaking to when he tells this parable. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners um, were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. So as he tells the story, there are all kinds of people listening, right? There's the tax collectors and sinners. Like they're notorious for living sinful lives, notorious for cheating people, for wild side, for saying, forget you, God, for running away. These were the types of people you would think would be nowhere near Jesus. You know, this guy's speaking and saying he's the son of God. You'd think they'd bolt and go the other direction, but they don't, which is what's so crazy about looking at the life of Jesus Christ is that the people who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus, and Jesus liked them. And so they're gathered on the front row and they're crowded in and they want to hear what he has to say. And then there's some other people, you know, standing in the back row. You got their arms folded going, look who he invites in. This guy can't be legit. Look who he hangs out with. And they were the rule keepers and they were religious leaders. They were really good at keeping rules and keeping the addendums to the rules and making sure everyone else is keeping the rules because they were always trying to determine who was in with God and who was out with God. So who do you think that Jesus tells this story for? Everybody. It's for everybody. It's for the embezzling, corrupt businessman and the self-righteous church leader. It's for frat boys and girls gone wild and the kid that grew up in Sunday school and knows all the right answers. It's for the addict and the prostitute and for the guy who has memorized scripture since he was able to talk. It's for the illiterate and uneducated and for seminary graduates. It's for broke college students, exotic dancers, and people who struggle with depression. It's for used car salesmen, truckers, celebrities, and rednecks. It's for teachers and factory workers, stockbrokers, and stay-at-home moms. It's for firemen and farmers and artists and hairdressers and politicians. This is a message for everybody. If you were alive and sucking air in the room today, Jesus told this story for you. There's hope for all of us. Now, I'm a little excited about this parable that we get to talk about today. Charles Dickens said about this story that it's the greatest story told by anyone ever. And I would have to agree. It's pretty remarkable how when Jesus tells these parables, we can see ourselves in the story. But another reason he told these stories and parables was to paint a very vivid picture of what God is like. Because we have so many different pictures in our minds, don't we, of what God is like. And he wanted to make it very clear. And so he did that through story. So we've got these two groups of people there listening to Jesus. And Jesus says, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And the people listening would have been like, what? That's crazy, right? No, he didn't. He did not go ask his dad for that money because you don't do that. Jewish tradition, this was such a huge slap in the face. This was basically saying because what would normally happen was the father would die. You know, then they would split the estate between the older brother and the younger brother. So he's going, hey, dad, you know, this is good and all, but I kind of like wish you were dead. Because I just want the money, right? Show me the money. I want out of here. And what's even crazier and, and ridiculous, and the people would have been shocked by this too, is that the dad does it. What? No, he didn't. He didn't give him that money. How humiliating that would be. How incredibly um, 
just devastating for this dad to have to do that. And what they would have understood is like, okay, if this happened, like seriously, if this kid really did come to his dad and say, I wish you were dead, can you give me the money? And the dad actually does it. What that would mean for this family is like, okay, you can go, but you are dead to me. He would have been ostracized, cut off, not only from the father, but from his entire family and from the Jewish community. You're going to go, then you're going to not come back. You are dead to us. You're dead to us. And so the younger son, he gathers it all. And he set off for a distant country. You ever gone far away? And there he squandered his wealth and wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. Right? So for the first time in his life, nobody's checking on him. His parents aren't around. There's no curfew. There's no accountability. And he goes wild. Have you ever been there? Me too. And the parties, you know, they were good as long as there was the cash to sustain them. But he really wasn't counting on wasting it all. He really wasn't thinking about, what happens if I spend everything? He wasn't expecting there to be hard times. He definitely wasn't expecting a famine to come across the whole country. I think what's so interesting about this verse is while all he was doing, all the life he was experiencing, you know, the wild nights and the parties and the friends and the girls and the drinks, whatever it was, it was fulfilling everything that he thought he wanted by running away. But it did nothing for him when he found himself in need. It couldn't satisfy. My friends in recovery describe this type of lifestyle like pouring water into a bucket that's got no bottom. You just keep pouring in and it will not satisfy. It just left him empty. Have you ever been there? Me too. So he went, Jesus said, And hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the field to feed his pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. At this point, the audience would have gasped, like, oh, no, you didn't say pigs. Pigs are considered unclean. This was like the very low, okay? This was like if my daughters, who have been properly raised to love Kentucky basketball, grew up to become Duke fans, okay? It is, it is low. It is very low, okay? Um, no, seriously, seriously, with the pigs, what Jesus is describing is this guy hit rock bottom. Have you ever been there? Me too. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. Those six words change everything when he came to his senses. Because, man, that's where it's at. And sometimes that happens when we got nowhere else to look but to look up. And we have that come to our senses moment that's like, what am I doing? What am I doing with my life? What am I still doing in this relationship? What am I doing with my body? What am I doing still in this cycle? What am I doing in this addiction? What am I doing? We have a come to our senses moment and we realize that our lives were meant for so much more than the pigsty that we find ourselves in. Have you ever been there? Me too. And maybe that's where you're at 
today, walking in here, it's just like, is there something more? Because I'm feeling very rock bottom. Listen, that is a good place to be. The beginning of freedom is when we come to our senses and realize, you know what? I am the problem. I am the problem. And I need a savior. We wake up to the mess that we've made. And this kid could have been blaming his parents. His upbringing, you know, maybe he had a sheltered life. Maybe he had a predisposition to partying. He could have blamed his belief system, his church, the pig farmer who wouldn't give him anything, the friends that disappeared as quickly as the money, but he doesn't. When you come to your senses, you understand, I am the problem. And I said, forget you, God, and I ran away, and I made a mess, and I need help, and I'm not okay, and that takes humility and courage. So he makes a plan. He says, I will set out, go back to my father, even though I know, like, I'm dead to him. I, I shouldn't be, come home. But I'll go, and I've got this little speech in my head. You know, I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and I've sinned against you, so I'm owning it. This is my mess, my mistake. I own it. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Like, I'm not, I know that I can't come back as your son. Like, I'm not asking for family dinners. I'm not asking for holidays. Like, could you just make me one of your hired servants? And so he got up and went to his father. He's got this speech in his back pocket. He's just going over it. Listen, this kid is dirty and filthy, and he's been with pigs, and he stinks, and he's starving. He's got to look so rough. And as he's coming down the road, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, and he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. And the son starts a speech. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father interrupts him and he says to his servants, okay, yeah, enough of that. Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. I mean, what a cool picture. The father sees this kid coming down the road, and he runs to him. And I don't know how many of you guys are graceful runners, but I imagine that this is like ugly dad run. You know, he just, he just can't help it, and he sees him, and he starts running, and he's hiking up the tunic, and the legs haven't seen the sun in a while, and he's just going for it. And he, he gets to his son, and they're, they're there, and he's like, oh, wow, I need to get the Purell out. You didn't realize you were going to be this dirt. No, he doesn't do any of that. He doesn't care that he stinks and that he's starving and that he's busted and he's wasted everything. He's just so glad he's back. He throws his arms around him and there's the ugly cry and there's snot in the beard and they're having the whole thing. I mean, it's just this amazing moment and Jesus is telling the story going, this is what God is like. This is what God is like. I can only imagine what that did in the hearts of the front row, right? The notorious sinners, they're gathered there to hear Jesus talk because they can relate. They're thinking, are you telling me this is what God is like? That he wants to welcome me home? That he would take me no matter what I've done? Make me his? His daughter, his son? Maybe they burst into applause. Maybe they burst into tears. Maybe they got that lump in their throat, you know, like this can't. Maybe the message of hope changed their lives. And if this were a movie, 
Like, this is where you want the movie to end. It's like, oh my gosh, that was amazing, you know? You know, you're just, it's finding Dory. It's the shells. Oh, the shells, right? You know, I can't believe she had this. Um, spoiler alert, you know, if you haven't seen Finding Dory, um, they find Dory, okay? Um, but the story doesn't end there. I mean, if this is a movie, you're like, end it. This is awesome. But there were two groups of people there that day and a father that loved them both. So the camera pans to a field, and the music changes, and it says, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked, What's going on? Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Like, dude, isn't that awesome? He's like, No. No. <laughs> The older brother became angry. He refused to go in. So his father went out and he pleaded with him. But he answered the father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. And I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? Have you ever been there? Me too. I look at the older brother and I see pride, I see arrogance, I see a lack of compassion, I see self-righteousness, a lack of mercy. I look at the older brother and I see legalism and entitlement and just judgment. But I also see a part of me, the part of me that sometimes feels like God owes me something, the part of me that makes following Jesus about keeping a bunch of rules. The part of me that sees myself as better than other people. The part of me that only thinks about me. The part of me that treats love like a commodity. The part of me that withholds compassion. The part of me that thinks that I'm okay. And you're not. And if we're honest, maybe all of us have a little bit of older brother in us too. And it's an attitude, maybe even under the surface, that says, I've been good so God owes me. That's the way this brother sees it. He's the one who stayed home. He's the one that worked the fields. He's the one that chose not to jump the gate and go, you know, humiliate the whole family. He's the one that deserves the party. He deserves more than this. I mean, look at what he, what he says to his father. All these years I've been slaving for you. Never disobeyed your orders, yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. He's saying, this isn't fair. After all I've done for you, you owe me. Even that he used the words, all these years I've been slaving for you, shows this wasn't partnership with the Father. There was no joy or gratitude. This was, I'm slaving away to get something from you. I've been doing all these things right, and now you need to do things for me in my life the way that I think they should be done. You owe me that. Have you ever been there? Where that, that attitude, that subconscious way of living says, God, I've been good, so I deserve better than this. You owe me that. And there's no real joy, no real gratitude, no real worship or, or love or real relationship with the Father because we may obey God, you know, slave away to get something from him, a life that we think we deserve. And when we start to think that our own goodness or our own decency, our own obedience, somehow merit a good life from God that God now owes us, 
Well, when life doesn't go the way we think it should, what happens? We end up so angry and frustrated and furious like the older brother going, this isn't fair. And our hearts become resentful towards our father. I need to be reminded all the time that I cannot be someone who does all the right things for all the wrong reasons. This isn't about getting leverage on God. If we think God owes us and we live out that attitude, it will turn us into sour, sulky, embittered, resentful, cynical people that are far away from the heart of our Father. Another prevailing thought that leads us towards the heart of an older brother is this. I'm not the problem. They are. I mean, as soon as he says all the things that he's done and how much his dad owes him, he goes on to say, but when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? I mean, he doesn't even call him his brother. He's like, remember, he's dead to us. He's still dead to me. He's not my brother. This son of yours comes home. This isn't fair. And he starts the comparison game. He's going, look what he did. He hurt our family. He left. He took the money. He's been out there doing who knows what, and you're throwing him a party? It's people like him that are the problem with this world. And you just hear the superiority roll off his tongue. And you know what's always under that? A massive sense of insecurity. Because you see, when we're operating out of doing all the right things so that God will owe us, there's this undercurrent of insecurity in us because we also don't have the right picture of God. We think somehow we've got to earn the Father's love by doing everything right and keeping all the rules instead of just trusting that he loves us simply because we are his. Like we can't do anything bad that would diminish the Father's love for us and we also can't do enough good things to earn his love. He just loves us because we're his. And when we're not secure in that truth, we begin to do and do and do and do to earn the Father's love and eventually that insecurity comes out and it attacks other people who aren't doing it the way that we are. Richard Loveless writes this, people who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus like apart from their present spiritual achievements, are subconsciously radical insecure persons. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness and defensive criticism of others. They come naturally to hate other cultural styles and other races in order to bolster their own security and discharge their suppressed anger. I'm not the problem. He is. The older brother wasn't even thinking about going into that party. He wasn't amazed at the father's capacity to love. He wasn't happy for his brother's new beginning. He wasn't about to forgive him because, listen, it's really hard for us to forgive people if we feel superior to them. And it's really difficult for us to extend grace to people if we haven't realized how desperately we need grace ourselves. And at its ugliest... The older brother in us is offended when we see people that we have deemed bad be welcomed home. And that is so far from the heart of the Father. And one of the main reasons that Jesus told this story that day. Listen, it's a good day when we stop muttering about those sinners and realize our own desperate need for the grace of God. 
It's our own come to our senses moment when we realize we can stop the comparison game. We can stop trying to earn God's love and we can realize we are also the problem and we desperately need a savior who is far superior to us. Never forget how much we need the grace of God. If we do, we will become insecure, judgmental, unforgiving people. One more thing that stands out to me when I since that older brother attitude kind of creeping in, is this one. This better not cost me anything. You see, what the people listening would have understood is when the father died, it was going to be the older brother that got two-thirds of the inheritance, and then the younger brother would have gotten one-third of the inheritance. So the father went ahead and gave you know, the younger son his one-third, and he wasted it all, squandered it all. But when the father welcomes this young kid back, not as a hired servant, but as a son again, that means that two-thirds that's left over when the father dies, it's going to get divided again. You tracking with the math here? So the younger brother had also blown a huge chunk of the older brother's inheritance as well. While the unconditional love of the father came free for the younger brother, it came as a cost to the older brother, and that did not sit well with him. And maybe it doesn't sit well with you. Maybe it's like, okay, well, if the father wants to believe his sob story, welcome him home, that's fine. That's his business, but this shouldn't cost me anything. That is not the gospel that Jesus teaches. The crowds that were gathered there that day to to hear Jesus teach, he actually told them three stories. One about a woman who had lost a coin that was precious to her, and she went frantic searching for it. She's flipping over couch cushions. She's got the Swiffer. You know, she's everywhere just looking for this coin, and when she finds it, she calls everyone she knows, and she throws a huge party because what was lost was found. Then he tells a story about a shepherd who had lost a sheep, and he leaves the 99, and he goes searching for the one, and when he finds it, he calls everyone and says, I found my sheep, and they throw a huge party. And then he gets to our story and he says, there's a father who lost his son. But what's so strikingly different is nobody goes looking for this kid. There's no search party. And what the people in the back row would have understood, the religious scholars, the people who knew the Old Testament, was that in the the beginning... God speaks to an older brother and a younger brother, Cain and Abel, and he tells Cain, you are your brother's keeper. And the tax collectors and sinners, they're not going to connect those dots, but the back row knows why there's no search for the younger brother is that it should have been the older brother out looking for him. He should have said, I'll go, and I'll find him, and I'm sure he's blown the inheritance by now, but I'll bring him home, even if it costs me something. Listen, what it might cost us in this life to follow the heart of God for other people who have run away is nowhere close to the high price that God paid for us through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. We have got to live with that perspective that God paid a high price for you. We don't live with the perspective of this better not cost me anything. We say, because God paid a high price for me, I'm willing to go search after you. You know, the part of the parable about the older brother 
the younger brother, I mean, it, it ends so beautifully, right? We just had the snotty cry, the beard, all that stuff is happening. It's just this beautiful, epic ending. But the part of the parable about the older brother is left without an ending. The father goes out to the field and he pleads with him, which I love that because that's the heart of the father. He wants everyone. And he goes out and he pleads with him, but it never says whether the older brother comes in. It never gets resolved. And I think that's on purpose because I think that ending is up to us, that we choose how this story ends, that today we could acknowledge maybe our entitlement our insecurity, our judgment, our legalism, our pride, our superiority that have distanced us from the Father and instead run to him and find that his arms are wide open for us too. And he's inviting us to join the party of the Father's love and help people find hope. It reminds me of this piece written by Sam Shoemaker from the Oxford Group. I love this so much. I'll read it for you. It says, I stand by the door. I neither go too far in nor stay too far out. The door is the most important door in the world. It is the door through which men walk when they find God. There is no use my going way inside and staying there when so many are still outside and they, as much as I, crave to know where the door is. And all so many ever find is only the wall where the door ought to be. And they creep along the wall like blind men with outstretched groping hands, feeling for a door, knowing there must be a door, yet they never find it. So I stand by the door. The most tremendous thing in the world is for men to find that door. The door to God. The most important thing that any man can do is to take hold of one of those blind groping hands and put it on the latch. Men die outside the door as starving beggars die. On cold nights in cruel cities in the dead of winter, they die for what is within their grasp. They live on the other side of it. They live because they have not found it. Nothing else matters compared to helping them find it, open it, and walk in and find him. So I stand by the door. Somebody must be watching for the frightened who seek to sneak out just when they came in to tell them how much better it is inside. The people too far in do not see how near these are to leaving because they're preoccupied with the wonder of it all. Somebody must watch for those who have entered the door but would like to run away. So for them too, I stand by the door. I admire people who go way in, but I wish they would not forget how it was before they got in. Then they would be able to help the people who have not yet even found the door or the people who want to run away again from God. You can go too deeply in and you can stay in too long and forget people outside the door as for me I shall take my old accustomed place near enough to God to hear him and know he is there but not so far from men not to hear them and remember they are there too where outside the door thousands of them millions of them but more important for me one of them two of them Ten of them, whose hands I intend to put on the latch, so I shall stand by the door. I have been the younger brother and the older brother at different times in my life. But thank God that the message is for everyone, right? And the invitation today, listen... The invitation today, if you are walking in here 
you feel you're starving, man, you feel like you've hit rock bottom and you're a mess, the invitation is come home. Jesus said, this is what God is like. You can come home. And for those of us who have maybe lived with these attitudes of the older brother and they've distanced us from the father, the invitation today is would you come in, into the party? Celebrate that the Father's love is for everyone? And would you be so bold to stand by the door and be a doorkeeper at this party? God, we are so grateful for your love for us. We thank you, God, that it is for everyone. And Lord, I just ask in these next few moments that you would speak to our hearts. We love you so much. In Jesus' name. Amen.